Well, we're in a series called Dear John. This is part four. Can you believe it? Already four parts into the series. And I want to talk to you about this. The assurance we need for anxious times. The assurance we need for anxious times. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 2, 28, and all the way through chapter 3. So 1 John 2, 28, all the way through 3, verse 24. These are anxious times. People are scared. 24-hour news networks have us caught up in a never-ending stream of potential disasters. Our world has gone through a, a serious crisis like never before in many respects, at least in modern history. And maybe you're looking at the world and you're thinking, man, I just, I don't know where I am right now. It feels as if the rug has been pulled out from under all of us. We've got this pandemic that could kill us. We've got this division, the spirit of division in our country right now that is dividing us. We've got global anxiety over what the future holds. We've got politicians running for office right now telling us just how bad the other person is gonna make our lives. And maybe today, maybe today you need what we're gonna talk about. Assurance for anxious times. You know, not much has changed since John wrote 1 John. He, he writes the Gospel of John. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He writes Revelation. They're all in our Bibles. And 1st John is written to the church in the first century, a church that's anxious, a church that's troubled, a church that's worried. They've got false teachers coming in telling them that unless they have some secret knowledge, some secret Gnostic wisdom, that they're really not right with God. They've got false teachers coming in left, right, and center. They don't know what the truth is. Remember, in the first century, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They weren't written yet. So anybody could come along and say anything, and they had no Bible to check it out with. The church in the first century was a lot like our time right now. Anxious, troubled, people telling us all kinds of things, all kinds of things that could get us anxious and worried and nervous. And in the middle of all this, I think that the question that some of us have to ask is how do I know I'm saved? How does a Christian know that they're saved? Because here's what we love to say in church, right? In church, we like to say, hey, God's with you. Nothing can stop you. God is for you. No one can be against you. Well, think about how we come to church and we worship this Jesus and some of you come and maybe you're here for the first time or the first time in a long time and you just feel like, man, maybe I'm not saved. Look at all these other people. Look at how they worship God. Look at how they, they know what to say at the right time and I'm out of place and maybe I'm not saved. Or maybe you're just looking at all the things that are in the world and it's troubled you so much that you almost feel like you're losing your salvation. You're drifting from God. You feel disconnected. To that end, ladies and gentlemen, John writes the words of 1 John chapter 3. Actually, the whole book. <laughs> the whole book is written to give you assurance 
that you're a Christian, believe it or not. And I wanna just take you first to this idea of what it means to know that you're saved because we need to get to what the scriptures teach us about that and not just assume things based on tradition or ritual. Like, how do you know you're saved? Do you know you're saved because you raised your hand at the end of one of our services? Do you know that you're saved because you come to church? Do you know that you're saved because you were raised by Christian parents? And those things all happen, but let's talk about this. Let's talk about what does Scripture say that brings us assurance before God that we know no matter what's happening in our world, we know Christ is in our heart. Look with me, if you will, at 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Here's what he says. And now, little children, abide in him. Somebody say, abide in him. One, two, three. Abide in him. Amen. So that, there's another so that. I always tell you, look at them. So that when he appears, we may have confidence. Somebody say confidence. Okay, We have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Okay, here's what John says. You want confidence? You wanna know that you're saved? You wanna, you wanna have a sense in your heart that no matter what happens outside of you, Christ is inside of you, and it's all good? Here's what John says. Abide in him. Abide in him. What does that word mean, abide? Well, we get the word abode in English from this word abide. And the Greek word is meno, means to stay, means to remain in place. Here's what it means. It means to spend time in. How do I, how do I know that I belong to this church? Because I'm here. Some Christians don't go to church. They don't feel saved. You gotta get into the body. Of, you gotta abide in Jesus. Some people, they, they, they drift from God. They don't turn to God. You've got to abide in him. Do you know when you're praying, when you're, when, you're, when you're talking to your father, you're taking practical steps to abide in Christ. And then what's the promise, John says? If you do this, you're going to have confidence when he comes again. Jesus is coming. He's on his way back. He's, he's coming home. And it's been a rough season it's been a rough season for the church, and it seems a little bit like, are we going backwards in our country? The coronavirus cases are rising. The tensions are escalating. It looks like it's going to get worse. Even our president said, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, and, and if you're not careful, you'll, you'll shrink back because of all the potential disasters. And this is why, ladies and gentlemen, this is why it was so imperative for us to gather again as a church after the lockdowns. It was so imperative and I remember, I remember, and you remember possibly when we opened the doors again here in North Attleboro, not yet in Woonsocket, but if you remember, I, I was so excited to be here because I know how important it is for you to abide in Christ, to have time here, to fellowship with each other, to see each other in person, to talk and just, just say hello to someone, to know we're not alone. 
And I'm so excited. If you were here, you remember I ran around this sanctuary like a crazy person, right? I got up on stage and I threw a bottle of Corona beer in the trash. I tore off my mask, threw it in the trash. And, 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 and listen, listen, I, I get it. Some of you got offended by that. I, I totally understand. And, and I even heard that some people left the church because I did that. And I'm like, hey, I was just happy to see you. I was just excited. I, I'm sorry. I just missed you so much. I couldn't hold it in. Here's, here's what I'm saying, though. You've got to be here. You want to have confidence in Christ? Abide in him. Do the things that turn your heart back to God. And here's why, I, here's why you want to do that, because I want you to write this down. It's the underlayment for the whole message. When you live in Christ... No crisis can live in your heart. Oh, that's good right there. When you live in Christ, when you abide, when you spend time with Christ, when you put him first in your life, prayer, fellowship with the church, coming to church, serving the church, doing what the scriptures teach us to do, which, what, the things that mean, the things that make us Christians, he says, man, when that's the reality, you're living in Christ, and when you live in Christ, and you know you live in Christ, no crisis can live in your heart. First John is written to give anxious Christians assurance. That's what he says. He's here for assurance. First John 5, 13. He says, I write these things. Look, I love it when Bible writers tell you why they write what they're writing. And this is one of those places. 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you can know. Man, tomorrow you... And I don't want to talk, I don't want to depress you, but tomorrow your life could end, but you know that it's just a beginning of the true life that is in you in Christ. That tomorrow you could struggle, but it's just temporary because one day Christ will crack the sky and come back. That you might, you might struggle through seasons, but that's all that they are, seasons. You've got eternal life. If Christ lives in your heart, no crisis can live there. I want to give you some signs. I want to give you some signs from 1 John chapter 3 on your assurance that you are in Christ. Now, I had this thought, and I thought, what does a sign do? What does a sign do? Chances are, if you're not familiar with this area, uh, you followed signs to get here. Signs to get to where we are right now. Waters Church, Woonsocket. Waters Church, North Donabur, right there, all right? And I think about this. When you consider signs, signs stop upon arrival at a location. Here's what a sign does. A sign does two things. Number one, a sign shows you the way that you're headed, and a sign reminds you kind of subconsciously, all right? A sign reminds you that you're not there yet. Otherwise, you wouldn't need the sign. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Like, we have a church, right? Water's church. 
Imagine we had a church like this, a sign like this. I think, I think we should have a sign like this. How about that, everybody? 295 North, that's a sign. I know where I'm going. Waters Church, five miles. Let's petition the state. Let's get that sign done, amen. But anyway, 295 North, I, I know I'm on the way, right, to, to Waters Church. I'm going north on, two, on 295. I'm headed there, exit five. I know, that's not the right exit, but nonetheless, you're, you're going that way. This shows you two things. Number one, you're headed to Waters Church. You're going north. It's about five miles. But it also says something under the surface. Here's what it says under the surface. You're not there yet. You're not, are you? If you were there, you wouldn't need the sign. Because so, there's no sign in our buildings that says this. <laughs> There's no sign, right? You look, look at our building, okay? I know you might see the logo, but there's no sign just kind of reminding you, hey, in case you forgot, you're in Water Church. Oh, you're, you know. You followed the signs on how to get here. Here's why I make a big deal out of this. Because 1 John chapter three, when you read it, it's signs that you're headed in the right direction. It's signs that you're headed to heaven. But listen to me. You're not there yet, and that's okay. And I emphasize this because so many people read 1 John chapter three and it jacks them up, it totally frustrates them. It'll scare you, actually, if you don't realize that what John is trying to do to provide assurance for the saints He's trying to say, listen, these are the things that are gonna lead you forward in the right, if, if you're seeing the right signs in your life, it's a sign that you're on the right track and you're on your way to heaven. But again, listen to me, listen to me. You're not there yet. And that's okay. So let's talk about the signs, shall we? Four signs of our assurance in Christ. How do I know? In a world of chaotic anxiety, how, do I, how can I know I belong to Christ? Four signs. Number one sign. Here we go. Strange to this world. Write it down. Write it down. Strange to this world. What do I mean by that? I mean that there is within your heart this, con, this growing sense that you don't belong here. That this is not your home. That, and, and here's another way of saying it. That you, you feel at odds with the way of the world. The world goes one way, but you, you know it's not right, and you get frustrated, and you might even get angry, but, but there's, what it is is, is a sign. And, and some of you let this really bother you, but I want actually to help it encourage you that when you feel strange to this world, it's actually a sign that you belong to a world yet to come. That's the power of the sign. So what does John say to you and me into the first century church. Here's what he says. He says in verse one, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. We are children of God. We are loved by God. And then he says, and so we are. And then, it's, and then this phrase, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You say, Pastor, I, I feel like I don't belong in this world. You don't. 
You are a citizen. If you're in Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. Later on in the chapter, in verse 13, John says this, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. You ever leave New England? And there's something that happens to Dunkin' Donuts coffee when you leave the six-state region of New England, isn't there? There's something that, there's something that happens. It's, so, it's strange. The water's not right. They don't put the right ratio of milk to coffee. You ask for, you know, cream and sugar, and it becomes, it looks almost like it's like, it's like milky coffee, coffee milk instead of coffee with milk. You know what I'm saying? And every time I travel outside of this area, the birthplace of Dunkin' Donuts, right? Every time I travel out, it just, I know I'm not in New England because the Dunkin' Donuts just isn't right. And you can tell them, can't you? You tell the person, I, please, not too much milk. And they still do it. And it's like they think more milk is better. And it's like, have you never been to New England? <laughs> I mean, that's, this is a problem for me. I, I struggle with this. Pray for me. But here's the thing. Here's what I'm telling you. <laughs> well, I know I'm out of New England when they don't get the coffee right. Listen, friends, as a Christian, we know we are strange to this world because they don't get life right. The world thinks that life is about possessions. We know it's not. The world thinks that life is about having as much pleasure as you possibly can. We know it's not. The world has a sexual ethic, a way that, we, that, a way that the world sees sex and sees man and woman, and even man and man, or woman and woman, or, or whatever, and, and, and Christians, you know, we say, wait a second, that isn't, that's not right, it's strange to me. Uh, the world sees, um, the world puts all their hope into the political system and, and the government, and if we only get the right people in office, and a Christian says, well, I understand the need for good governance, but, but that's not my ultimate hope. You're not getting the coffee right. And sometimes, if you're not careful, you'll let this strangeness to the world bring doubt and anxiety and fear into your life. But I want you to see your strangeness not as a sign of fear or doubt, but as an assurance that you don't belong here. You belong there. You belong there. Amen? What does Jesus say in John chapter 17? He says, listen, Father, he's praying to the Father. He says, I've given them, their, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. And then he says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. I ask that you keep them from the evil one. In other words, protect them from the evil one who's gonna try to come in and say, you know what, you're just an outcast. You're just a, a stranger. You're just, why, don't you just, why don't you just kill yourself? Why don't you just get out of here? No, 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 I pray that you keep them away from that because they are not of the world Look at that next line. As I am not of the world. Christians, we need to remember that we worship a rejected Savior. He was rejected. He was hated. He was vilified. People said, we don't want him here. So too we will feel strange. To this world. First Peter 2.11 has always been a, a passage that I've resonated with, and here's what Peter says. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners. In other words, you're traveling through, sojourn. You're traveling through this world. You're not of this world. You're traveling through it. And exiles. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war 
against your souls. How do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that in spite of what's happening on the outside, that crisis can't get inside? Here's how I know. Because I feel strange to this world, and it's just a symbol of assurance that I belong to his. Number two sign. Unsatisfied by sin. Unsatisfied by sin. Okay, now this is why I'm talking about the signs that point you that you're going in the right direction, but you're not there yet. Okay, remember I said that. A sign points you where you're going, but you're not there yet. It's imperative that you hear me on that for this passage because I have seen preachers butcher this passage and cause all kinds of anxiety in people's hearts because they didn't see the pastoral heart behind John as he presents these words. In fact, I remember I was at a church back, oh, about seven years ago now, and I was visiting this church, and it was far away from here, and uh, in the land of bad Dunkin' Donuts coffee, and uh, it was far away from here, and I remember I was in the, the serve team center where all the volunteers hang out. I don't know why I was there, but I just ended up there, and this guy was preaching on 1 John 3, and he was just giving people anxiety about their faith because he didn't tell them about the sign that shows them where they are on the way, but not there yet. And this woman, after the service, comes bursting into the room, and she says, well, I feel totally condemned. And I know what happened. This, this guy, this pastor, all, I'm sure well-meaning, but he didn't, he didn't prevent, he didn't preach 1 John 3 in the vein of John's ultimate goal to bring assurance to the faith. He brought anxiety to their faith because he didn't understand the context. So I want you to see this next passage with that in mind. Here's what he says, verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. Now this is a verse that could jack you up. Just pay attention for a moment. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And now this is another hard verse. Listen to it, verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay, now, on the surface, let's, let's dig deep now. On the surface, it looks like John is saying, if you sin, you're not a Christian. That's not what he's saying. Okay, because that would totally contradict what we've already talked about in the series, what John has already mentioned, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, verse 10, 1 John 1, 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So John's aware, and then later on in the, in the, in the uh, fifth chapter, he's gonna say, if you see your brother or sister sinning, pray for them. So, so John's not gonna contradict himself one chapter to another. And by the way, Christians sin. All you gotta do is know any Christian for about five seconds to realize that Christians sin. This is why Jesus said, pray daily, give us this day our daily bread, and then a little later he says, and forgive us of our, what? Sins. So we're going to daily need forgiveness because we daily sin, right. And by the way, it's also, it would also contradict what, what uh, James says in chapter three, verse two. James three, two says, we all stumble in many ways. We all do. 
Paul the apostle was not perfect. He says in Romans chapter seven, he says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. So no, John is not saying Christians don't sin, and if you sin, you're not a Christian. Here's what he's talking about, though, and this is imperative that you get this. He's talking about your relationship to sin. He's talking about your relationship toward sin. So I've got four subpoints under this, and it's imperative that you write these down. Number one, first thing he says is a Christian doesn't practice sin. He doesn't practice sin. Uh, he says it actually several times. He doesn't make a practice of sinning or keep on sinning. So, so let's look at verse four again. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now think about that word practice. When it comes to practice, let's just talk about the English word, practice. Because the word, the verb in the sentence here is not sinning. The verb in the sentence is makes a practice of. So he's saying no one makes a practice of sinning. Now here, here's, here's what I want you to think about. In our world, you practice things that you want to get good at. Just think about that. It's very simple. It's very simple. If you want to get good at piano, you, you, you deliberately get yourself to the piano every day to get good at the piano. You want to get good at basketball, you head over to the hoops and you shoot hoops. You want to get good at shooting hoops. Here's what he's saying. A Christian doesn't want to get good at sin. <laughs> Okay, a Christian does not, and this is, now, now let me get some straight truth to you. A Christian husband does not have a burner phone for his lover. Okay, that's practicing sin. Right? A, 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 Christian, a Christian doesn't try to make sure that all of his lies are aligned so that he can live a totally different life. When the Christians aren't looking. That's making a practice of sin. Here's what it is. Your relationship to sin is such that you don't want to do it better. You don't want to do it more. You know sin is terrible. So number two, your relationship to sin. A Christian believes that Jesus died for sins. We believe, this is why we don't want to get good at it. Because we fundamentally believe that Jesus went to the cross for our sins. Why do I want to do something that costs Jesus his life? Again, we will sin, but we don't want to. Paul says, the, the good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want, I keep on doing. Why? Because we have the flesh inside of this other part, this, this evil human nature that rebels naturally against God that we inherited from Adam and Eve. And so the Holy Spirit at salvation comes in and it turns our hearts toward God, but we're still carrying around what Paul says, this body of death that wants to disobey God. But we believe that, it, that Jesus died for sins. Here's what he says in verse five. He appeared in order to take away sins and in him there's no sin. Jesus came to take away sins. Listen to me very carefully. So important that you get this. Jesus did not come to set a good example Primarily, Jesus did not come to establish a religion. Jesus did not come to impress people with miracles. Jesus came to go to the cross to pay for our sins so that our sins could be wiped out and we could be accepted before God. <laughs> Number three, a Christian knows that sin originates from the devil. This is exactly what Paul, uh, John says here. See, this is why we don't like sin, because sin comes from the devil. Before Adam and Eve sinned, listen, Satan sinned. 
Satan sinned in heaven when he rebelled against God. And now look at how John phrases this. This is so good. In verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That phrase, the devil has been sinning from the beginning, it refers to the fact that this is the expression of his nature. He wants to sin. He wants to rebel. He wants to do exactly the opposite of what God wants him to do. He's been doing this from the beginning, and he's never going to stop. A Christian doesn't live like that. A Christian doesn't say, well, I just want to do this, and I'm never going to stop. Now, when a Christian is confronted with sin, a Christian says, i got to get rid of this. This is helpful for Christian marriages. Because sometimes in Christian marriages, we'll point out each other's faults, and, we'll, and what's our response in that moment? Is our response, how dare you judge me? Or is, or is our response, wait a second, I need to take a look at that. Or Christian relationships, and, and you're in small group, and I hope you are, but you're in small group, and someone says, listen, you know, you dominate the conversation here. You make this group all about you. Do you immediately get, well, I, I deserve that. That's, that's how I am, and you're just gonna deal with it. Wait a second, wait a second, wait. Maybe you need to take a look and say, wait, that's not the character of Christ. So number four, a Christian grows less and less involved with sin. That's what a Christian does. He grows less and less involved with sin. Grows. Circle the word grows if you're taking notes. Because here's what he says in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed. Somebody say seed. God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay, what is he saying? It's a, the, the, the seed of God in a Christian is in him. Now listen, a seed starts very small. Jesus equated the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. It starts very small. When you first get saved, listen, this is so good, I hope you get it. When you first get saved, the work of God in your life is very small, but over time, it grows, and eventually that seed starts to burst through the ground and then bud and blossom and produce fruit, but it takes time to go from small seed to producing seed and, 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 and producing fruit. This is why at church, at Waters Church at least, and this is, I, I hope this is your experience, that when you first get saved, we do not expect you to be a finished saint by Tuesday. <laughs> we do not expect you to have everything changed. You're gonna bring a lot of your old life into your new life. But listen, this is the promise of God's word. The seed is there. It's gonna grow. It's gonna develop and it's gonna bear fruit. And it's going to bring life. And I want to say one last thing, and this is not in your notes. But here's what else a Christian understands about sin. Sin kills. Sin kills. That's why he says he has been born of God. Sin kills. You know, I want to get a little bit pastoral with you. I understand that the coronavirus has been a serious problem. I understand it. But I want to be a... A, a, a bit of a, of, a, of a truth teller in this moment. Because in many ways I've seen the church act just like the world in believing that the coronavirus is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. It is not. Sin is. 
sin kills. And, and this is why, friends, I was so passionate about getting you back into this place. And some of you have still yet to get over the fear that, that has been deposited in you through endless news and endless negativity and has caused you to shrink back and shrivel up and now you don't even think that church is necessary. And I'm just gonna be honest, it really ticked me off to hear people say that church was non-essential. Are you kidding? This is the place where people's hearts get hope. And I understand when non-Christians think that this gathering is non-essential. I get that. They're non-Christians. We should never expect Christians to understand non-Christians. I'm sorry. We should never expect non-Christians to understand the value of Christians gathering. My problem has been with the Christians who don't understand the value of Christians gathering. This is the one place where we receive the presence of the Lord in ourselves, where we see brothers and sisters, where we join ourselves to the body, where we come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper and hear the word of God and, and worship Jesus in the spirit. And there's something supernatural that happens in our hearts when we gather as the church. That's why we're not shutting the doors again. I'm just telling you right now. If they, shut the, if they tell us to shut the doors, I'm not. We are going together. This is a place of hope. I mean, it just, it just drives me nuts that this isn't considered essential. Yet, yet liquor stores were open. People could buy cigarettes. You know that alcohol and cigarettes over the same period of time of coronavirus, the same period of time that coronavirus was a problem in our country, alcohol and cigarettes killed 77,000 people. Now the coronavirus killed 150,000. But we haven't shut down liquor stores. We haven't, we haven't stopped the sale of cigarettes. Let me get a little bit more politically incorrect. During the same period of coronavirus, which killed 153,000 Americans, and it's terrible, and it's a tragedy, and it's serious, you know that abortion claimed the lives of 443,000 Americans. 900 abortions a day in this country. I'm sorry, no, not 900, 1,200. 1,200 abortions a day in this country. No big deal. Abortion facilities stayed open. And by the way, Black Lives Matter, 137,000 of those abortions were black children. So I got no problem with you fighting for equal rights, but what about the equal rights of the unborn? Why are we silent on that? because the world doesn't like it, because we don't want the world to not like us, because we want to be friends with the world. I'm not interested in being a friend of the world. I'm interested in being true to the truth of God's word. Every unborn child is a precious object of my Father in heaven. And I got a huge problem just being pastoral. I'm just being a truth teller. You might not like this, but you need this. I got a huge problem when we'll shut down churches and call them non-essential, and we'll keep open abortion centers and call them essential. Do you realize that we live in a world that considers the church non-essential and abortion centers essential? That is why we should feel strange to this world. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world 
hates you. That's number two. Unsatisfied by sin. Sin kills. Sin sucks. Number three. Sign that I'm saved. Steadfast love for the people of God. Here's, here's how you know you're on the way to heaven. You love the people of God. You love being here because here's where the people of God gather. You love small group because when you get into small group, you are in fellowship with the people of God and that love doesn't die. Here's what John says. Let's take a look at what our pastor says here in this passage. By this, verse 10, by this it is evident who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor, look at this, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, so John, John ties this together, practicing righteousness and loving our brother. Then verse 11, he says, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. I get really frustrated when I hear Christians saying, well, I, I love Jesus, but I just really don't like church. Are you, are you kidding? The church is the body of Christ. Remember when, when, when Saul is converted on the road to Damascus, what does Jesus say? He shows up, he blinds him, he throws him on the ground, and he says, listen, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul was going to kill Christians. Jesus says, no, you're hurting me. How we treat the body of Christ is how we treat Christ himself. This is what John says in verse 12. He says, do not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. There's a spirit of Cain in the world. And Christians, this is why we're strange to the world. The spirit of Cain hates the spirit of Christ. And I can understand. Look, man, I'll tell you, I was born, raised, baptized, filled with the Holy Ghost in the church. And I can tell you, uh, I'm a first person witness. I'm a, I've had a front row seat to the nasty that can be coming from Christians. I've had a front row seat my whole life, but I don't give up on the church. Why? Because those are my family. I love them. Verse 14, it says, we know. I, just look at this verse. We know we have passed out of death into life because this is what's gonna bring you assured. I, we know we have passed out of life, out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever doesn't love abides in death. It doesn't get any clearer than that. We love the church with all of her foibles, with all of her flaws. We still love her. Why? Because they're family, they're my brothers and sisters. Verse 16, he says, By this we know love that he laid down his life, and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. And then verse 17, but if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can the love of God abide in him? Here's what he's saying. Love for the church is practical. It's material. It's expressed in giving. Let me tell you how you can be part of that giving of love to the body of Christ here in our church in just a few moments here. Number one, right in our backyard, we minister to the Providence Rescue Mission. Every month we go down, we feed the homeless, and then we preach the gospel to them. We have action teams. You can sign up to be a part of an action team where you help people with real material needs, thus fulfilling God's great commandment to love one another with material goods. You tithe and you give to this church 
And, and tithe means one-tenth. One-tenth of my income comes back into the church. And we take that and we put it into Guatemala and India and El Salvador and Uganda and missions works across the world for the glory of Christ. Because that's what it means to know we're saved. We can't help but help others who are members of God's family. And then one of the other things we challenge you to do is sponsor children through compassion. We have so many of you, so many of you in Woonsocket that just sponsor a child through Compassion International. You just, you pay $38 a month to feed and clothe a child in another country. And two years ago, Sharon and I had the opportunity to go to Uganda and actually meet one of our Compassion children. It was a life changer. Sign number four, strengthened in heart by the Holy Spirit. How do I know that I'm saved? Okay, this is, this is my favorite point. Verse 19. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him, semicolon. He says, for whenever our heart condemns us. Okay, stop there. Have you ever felt like you're not a Christian? Have you ever felt like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm out of sorts. Maybe even right now, you've just been so challenged. You just feel, maybe I'm not a Christian. And, and your heart might come in and say, that's right, you're not. You see, we have this enemy. It's the, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that fleshly heart comes in and says, you're not good enough. You're not right. You're not doing right. And, and he condemns us. Pastor, Pastor Tim, do you ever feel doubt about your faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. On a regular basis. Well, what do you do? Here's what I do. Look what it says. The very next line, it says this. For whenever our hearts condemn us, whenever, it means it's gonna happen. God is greater than our heart. You know what I do when my heart condemns me? I say, Heavenly Father, you're greater than my heart. I need you to step in here. I need you to do what you can do with my rebellious, stubborn heart. And then he says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and then look at this, and whatever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Pleases him. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son and love one another just as he commanded us. So we say, Lord, step in here. My heart, I'm anxious, I'm worried, I'm nervous, I'm not believing you. Um, Recently, and I know this is going to bless you. Uh, I've been going, through, whenever I can't sleep, I'll like wake up in the middle of the night and I can't fall back to sleep. You know, the older you get, the more you do this. But anyway, I've been praying a prayer. And I remember that moment in the book of Acts, chapter 12, where Peter was thrown in the dungeon. They just killed James. And Peter was gonna go on trial to be killed himself, and he was in the dungeon waiting, awaiting execution the next morning. Scripture says that he was sleeping, and he was sleeping so soundly, the angel had to like knock him to wake him. Get up, dummy, you're about to be killed. I'm gonna rescue you. And the angel let him out of the prison. And I've always loved that passage, not because, not because so much Peter was rescued, that's wonderful, but more so because in the midst of a potential deadly situation, Peter was able to sleep. And I've always thought, Lord, and when I, so recently I've been doing this, it's worked like a charm, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll say, Father, I pray for Acts chapter 12, Peter sleep. <laughs> and I've been falling asleep right away. It's just an amazing thing because God is greater than our hearts.
God is greater than our hearts. And then verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments, that, that, so we do what we've been talking about, love the brothers, believe. Whoever keeps those commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he, is abide, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. It's got the Holy Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit. You're not, you're not meant to drum up this super Christian faith that's fake and not real. You've got the Holy Spirit in you to bear witness in your heart that you belong to God. And though coronavirus cases surge and nations rise and fall and riots destroy cities and families are divided and all these potential disasters surround us, we know that we are His through the Holy Spirit inside. And no one can separate us from His love. In sum, I just want to put them up on the screen all together for you. I know I'm saved because I feel more and more strange to this world, because I love sin less and less, because I love God's people more and more, and I'm strengthened by His Holy Spirit. It's my prayer for you that in the midst of these anxious times, you see these signs in your life, and you lift up your eyes to heaven, and you say, come, Lord Jesus.